Morning, please take a seat. Uh, scripture reading today is from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. This is the infallible word of God. Over the past several months, we have studied the first 10 chapters of Genesis, a book penned by Moses and inspired by God. We began with the creation of the universe, ex nihilo, or out of nothing, and the origin of man from the dust of the ground, with God breathing the breath of life into his nostrils and animating him from the dirt. We studied the original temptation of man in the garden, and through his rebellion, man's ultimate fall from communion with God. We studied Cain's murder of Abel and God's implicit declaration through that story that he alone is worthy to determine what appropriate worship looks like. And man, as animated dirt, has no right to question his preferences. Recently, we studied the great flood of Noah's time and God's judgment of a wicked, rebellious world, all while keeping in mind his deliverance of Noah and his family and his ultimate redemptive plan. And this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. For some of you in this room, it may be your first time hearing this story, and for others, you may have heard this story many times in Sunday school, children's church, maybe even a Sunday sermon. And if your experience with this story was anything like mine, that story probably went something like this. Well, boys and girls, once upon a time, there was a group of people who decided to build a tower to reach God. That made God angry, so he came down, confused everyone's language, and spread them across the face of the earth. And that 
is why you need to take Spanish in high school. I, I was then handed a coloring sheet with a tower that looked suspiciously like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I colored it in, maybe a little bit outside of the lines, and I went about my day. We leave so much truth on the table when we discuss Babel in that way. Babel is not merely a language origin story, and the sin at Babel is not in its height. So then, if those are not the main or only points of Babel, what can we learn here? What is the point of Babel? As we work through the nine verses that form this narrative, we will see that Babel and its construction is a clear example of man's limitless rebellion and pride. Since the fall, man has run from God as quickly as possible. When God says to go this way, we immediately go that way. What God declares good, man declares evil, and what man declares evil, God or what man or God declares evil, man declares good. We are utterly incapable of keeping even the most basic commands. It shows very clearly why we need a savior in the first place. But in addition to that rebellion, we will see that Babel is an example of man's desire to lift himself up, to make a name for himself. And though we will talk about rebellion and pride throughout this message, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God's redemptive plan for mankind is ever-present at Babel. And that is true from Genesis to Revelation. And a helpful way to think of that is to imagine the entire Bible as a single song or poem where there would be verses or lines about the fall of man, about Babel, about Cain's murder of Abel, about David's adultery, about the betrayal of Judas or Peter, Peter's denial of Christ. But the constant refrain or the chorus, the repeating line of that song or poem would be Christ crucified. And that is true throughout the entirety of Scripture. So with those two themes in mind, man's limitless rebellion and pride and God's redemptive plan, let's take a look at the verses for this morning. We will be in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, if you were paying attention last week, we have a timeline question to answer right away here. We're in chapter 11, and we're told that this story takes place when all the world spoke one language. But in chapter 10 that we studied last week, we have already learned about various peoples and nations and languages. If you flip back to Genesis 10, in verse 5, we read, from these, the coastland peoples, spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. And now we're being told in chapter 11 that the whole world spoke one language. Surely Moses hasn't forgotten what he said one chapter earlier. So, so what's going on here? Chapter 10 gives us a broad period of time. And chapter 11 focuses in on a specific occurrence during that broad period. 
And this chronological structure is not unique in Scripture. In fact, we've already seen it in the earliest portions of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we see the creation of man generally. And then in chapter 2, a subsequent chapter, we focus in and we learn more details about the origin of man from the dust of the ground. So again, this is not unusual, but we have to keep that in mind when we read chapter 11. Now that we've discussed the original timeline question, we can get back to the point of verse 1. At this time in human history, the entirety of the world spoke the same language. But in addition to speaking the same language, they were united in both language and in word. Now in English, that might seem redundant. Of course they were united in word, if they were united in language. What are we making a distinction here for? These are two distinct Hebrew words we are reading here. And essentially, verse 1 tells us that during this period of time, communication was so simple, people were so united, that it was easier to communicate then than it would be today for two people from opposite sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Though both individuals would speak the same language, English, they would use different words to describe things on occasion. I remember when I first moved to Pennsylvania from South Carolina, I would get weird looks in the supermarket when I would refer to the shopping cart as a buggy. I grew up calling it a buggy. Everyone I knew called it a buggy. But around here, a buggy is what the Amish ride around in. So in that moment, we were united in language, but we were not united in word. There was confusion there. Another example would be if you were to fly from Harrisburg today and go to England, you would be united in language, but not in word. There would be regional variation in speech, and you would hear confusion at times because you would use different words to describe things. But that's not what we have in chapter 11 and verse 1. We have a united humanity. This is one people, one nation, one family, descendants of Noah. They are completely united in language and word. Let's move to verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 2 is giving us more context for this unfolding story. And the people we're talking about here, again, are the descendants of Noah. We talked about them last week as we studied chapter 10. Now remember, as the flood waters retreated, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. We learned that in Genesis 8-4. And these descendants of Noah have now moved into the fertile Mesopotamian Valley region, and they find a plain in Shinar that they like, and they want to settle there. And for context, we are in the area that would become Babylonia and modern-day Iraq. And to this day, this region is very fertile. So there's nothing unusual about these descendants of Noah wanting to settle in Shinar. Again, they are completely united, and this is a nice area. But as we move on, we will see where the problem lies. Verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, 
and bitumen or tar or mortar. Here we learn about the building materials that the tower builders planned to use at Babel. And it would be so easy for us at this moment to just speed through verse 3 to get to what we consider to be the meat of the Babel narrative. And we do that a lot when we read Scripture. Um, here's the scenario. You're working through a genealogy, perhaps chapter 10, perhaps the genealogy we worked through last week. And increasingly, the Hebrew names are becoming difficult for you to pronounce in your head. The, the begets and the begots are beginning to run together. And your inclination is to rush through to get to the better passages, as you've convinced yourself. And you hope that in doing so, your Christian-trained brain will catch the keywords like faith and grace and repentance, the things you might find on the bookmark at Crossway. But we leave so much truth on the table when we treat Scripture in that way. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every jot and every tittle of Scripture serves a purpose. There is not a single wasted word in the entirety of Scripture as originally written. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can assure you that the genealogies and the brick-making verses of Scripture are no duller than the most well-known Bible verses. And their portion of the blade is just as sharp and it is just as piercing. And we leave so much truth from God in the table when we rush through these types of verses. So then, what is the purpose here in verse 3? Is this merely a brick-making recipe should you desire to build your own tower? There's something else to be gleaned here. Let's read that verse again. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. These descendants of Noah had discovered at some point that subjecting these once sun-dried bricks to fire created a sturdier building material. But not only are they subjecting these bricks to fire, they are doing it thoroughly. They are paying attention to these building materials. They are throwing the best they have to offer. They are sparing no expense, if you will. They're paying attention to the tower. And that's important for us to remember as we work through the rest of this story, especially when we get to the motivation for building the construction at Babel in the first place. But here we are, three verses into a nine-verse narrative, and we're a third of the way through, and so far we know that the entirety of the world spoke one language. These descendants of Noah had migrated from the east, and now we know what they plan to use in the construction. It's not clear at this point where the problem lies, but as we get into verse 4, 
we will see why Babel is a cautionary tale. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. There are several important things that we should take note of in verse 4. First, notice that the tower builders say, let us build a city and a tower. Not just a tower. And I would deal with the city and the tower separately because they highlight different sins at Babel. The more flippant recitations of this story, like the one I discussed earlier that I was subjected to, often leave out the city completely. I wonder how many of us, when we recall Babel, even think of a city. I would venture to guess that very few of us do, but why would a city matter? A city is a permanent place of refuge. You build a city to stay. You build a city to remain. You throw up walls for safety and you remain there. And this highlights a key theme in the story that I discussed earlier. Man's rebellion against God. And why would a city represent rebellion against God? It makes complete sense why these descendants of Noah would settle down in Shinar in their heads. They're one people, one nation, one family, completely united in both language and work. This is a fertile area. Why not settle down in Shinar? The problem is that no fewer then three times throughout the first ten chapters of Genesis, God has told humanity to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out over the earth. Please turn with me to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And flip forward just a few pages to Genesis chapter 9. In verse 1, we see, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again in verses 6 and 7, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, Noah and descendants, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Three separate times, God has commanded humanity to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And what does man decide to do instead? He decides to build a singular city in Shinar to rebel against an explicit command of God. Now, it's beneficial for us to reflect on man's rebellion in general for a moment here because it is a key theme in this narrative. Man 
breaks the law of God 100% of the time in his fallen state. We are completely incapable of keeping the most basic commands of God. And we often use the forthcoming Levitical law to illustrate that point, the law of Moses. And it's easy to do so through the law. Um, in fact, we learn why it's so easy to show man's rebellion through the law in Romans 3. Please turn to Romans 3, verses 20 through 23. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We gain knowledge of sin through the law. Uh, put another way, the law is a mirror of sorts that reflects back to us our complete inability to live up to God's holy standard in the first place. But the law is complicated at times, right? Uh, there are rules in the law on what types of animals the Israelites could eat based on their feet. Uh, what they should do with their house when it had mold in it, when they could be with their spouse. It, it's complicated. And the temptation in the human mind is to say, well, maybe we should give man a pass. No one could follow such precise ordinances. Maybe man isn't rebellious to his core. Maybe man is actually deep down good. And we've been given rules that are too difficult. But Babel, in the first few chapters of Genesis, this beginning portion of Genesis, is so important for that very reason. The same temptation to give man a pass is not present here. Man is incapable of keeping even the most basic commands of God. What could be simpler than these two commands? That tree over there, the really obvious one that I'm pointing out to you, do not eat from it, for if you do, you will surely die. Man rebels and eats from the tree. Or this command, you, Noah and descendants, I've delivered you from the flood. Now increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What does man do? He desires to build a city and a tower in Shinar. Long before the first dietary restriction was ever handed down to the Israelites, man was incapable of keeping even the most basic commands of God. In lieu of multiplying and filling the earth, man desires to hunker down in Shinar. So the city really represents this rebellion against God, and it's rebellion against an express command of God. But not only is it rebellion, it is explicit rebellion. In verse 4, their motivation is rebellion, lest we be dispersed. They are avoiding a command of God. Now, what can we learn from the Tower of Babel? Let's go back to verse 4 and the motivation here. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, 
and let us make a name for ourselves. These tower builders wanted to build the city and the tower for themselves to make a name for themselves. Proverbs 11.2 tells us that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The dangers of pride and self-glorification are clear, but man's proclivity for self-glorification is powerful. How could these tower builders desire to build a tower for themselves to make a name for themselves when the deliverance, the mercies, and the judgment of God were so clearly visible in the rearview mirror? Remember, we're a few generations after Noah. Many scholars believe we're as few as 100 years after the flood. This would have been fresh in their minds. But instead, man forgets God's judgment and his deliverance, and he desires to build a tower for himself to make a name for himself. Now, when reading the motivation, the prideful motivation in verse 4, I'm reminded of a passage in 1 Samuel, and, and it occurs later in Scripture, but there is also construction of sorts in that passage, but instead of man desiring to lift himself up, we see man desiring to honor God. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel 7, verses 10 through 12. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. The famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, captures this moment in its lyrics. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Though God's deliverance through the flood and his judgment were so clearly visible in the rearview mirror, the men at Babel desired to construct nothing that remotely resembled Ebenezer. Instead, they decided to build a monument, a tower, an Ebenezer of sorts to themselves. It's likely, if not certain, that these tower builders had occasion to look up into the sky as they were building at Babel and see the rainbow in the sky. God's promise never to flood the world again. Perhaps between swings of his hammer, man glanced up to see the rainbow and observe its colors and maybe reflect on its meaning only to return to his prideful, rebellious task. How often do we do the same? We forget the deliverance and the mercies of God, and we seek to make a name for ourselves in our everyday lives. We often forget 
what God has done for us. If Noah's family, 100 years post-flood, can forget the judgment and the mercies and the deliverance of God, so can we. And that truly is the human condition. We build Babel far more often than we build Ebenezer. That is who we are. We often seek to steal the praise and glory due to God alone. Now that we understand the motivation behind the city and the tower at Babel, rebellion and pride, will God allow this clear act of rebellion and pride to go on? We find the answer to that question in the following verses. Let's take a look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. First, notice how the author, how Moses refers to these tower builders. He refers to them as children of man. Some of your translations may say children of Adam. And that's appropriate here because man is following in the sinful footsteps of his forefather, Adam. And in response to man's construction at Babel, God came down to see the tower. But God is omnipresent. God need not come down to be made aware of a tower built by man's hands. Recall David's words in Psalm 139, verses 7-10. through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Clearly, God need not come down to see this tower, but he chooses to come down to see this tower in judgment on man's uh, rebellion and pride. Now, we should note here that this type of tower, uh, called a, a ziggurat, was designed with its top in the heavens. Now, that's not so much a comment on the tower's height, though I'm sure they desired to build a tower that was very tall with its top in the heavens. But it also speaks to the intent behind these towers. You can still find these towers to this very day. They're all over Mesopotamia. And they are a step pyramid of sorts designed as a ladder to heaven. And they're often associated with idolatry. And these tower builders did indeed see heaven come to earth, but not in the way that they anticipated. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are all one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. In declaring that nothing they do will be impossible for them, God is not co-signing man's assertion that he is worthy of a name or that he's worthy of praise. Instead, God conveys here that there's no limit to man's potential for rebellion and pride as a unified sinful mass. And let's be clear here. God's actions at Babel are not due to his fear of man's potential or that he was afraid man was becoming too great of an architect and that he needed to come down and hobble creation so that man cannot actually reach heaven. 
his abode. God comes down in judgment on man's rebellion and pride. The city and the tower of Babel are only the beginning of what man will do. Accordingly, God acts in verses 7 and 8. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. God's response to man's construction at Babel is twofold. First, he makes it harder for man to communicate. Second, he spreads humanity across the face of the earth in accordance with his original command in the first place. Now, notice the plural phrase at the beginning of these verses. Let us go down and confuse their language. We see the same construction in Genesis 1.26 when we read, let us make man in our image. This early in Scripture, we see the triune nature of God that is further articulated and established throughout Scripture, but the Trinity is present here as well. But also, when God utters the phrase, let us go down and confuse their language, it stands in stark contrast to man's words in verse 4. Man says, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. And God says, oh no, let us go down and confuse their language and restore the proper order of praise and glory. Now that man is able to communicate uh, no longer, the builders departed Babel according to their families and languages. And we reach the conclusion of this verse or this passage in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This verse links the name of the city Babel with the Hebrew word law, which means to mix, confuse, or mingle. And at this point, we have a confused, scattered, and disinherited people. This is truly a low point in human history. And as poor as the story ends from the human perspective, should we conclude that this is where the story ends? The answer to that is a resounding no. But where does this leave us? What can we learn from this story in 2023 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? What truth can the believer learn through this story? I said at the beginning that Babel is a clear example of man's limitless rebellion and pride. And that's certainly the case. Everyone, including me, must acknowledge that the rebellious tendencies of the tower builders are ever-present in us as well. But for, the covenant, or but for the promise of a new heart, through the new covenant, each and every one of us will continue to rebel in the very same way as the tower builders. We are completely incapable of keeping the most basic commands of God. Simply, that's why we need a Savior in the first place. You will never live a good enough life to reach heaven. But we must also realize 
that we have a very real tendency to try to take what is due to God alone. We desire to lift ourselves up. We desire to make a name for ourselves each and every day. Again, we build Babel far more often than we build Ebenezer. As you leave this sanctuary, will your life represent Babel or will it represent Ebenezer? Will you say, let me make a name for myself? Or will you say, thus far the Lord has helped me? Finally, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God's redemptive plan is ever-present at Babel. Remember, the refrain of Scripture is Christ crucified, and that is true this early in Scripture as well. The Old Testament points to the cross, and the New Testament witnesses the cross and reflects on the cross. In the very next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, we will see God call Abraham from this very region and establish the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And we will follow Israel throughout periods of captivity and wandering and exile and judges and prophets. And we will see a constant cycle of rebellion and grace, rebellion and grace, rebellion and grace. We're going to see the same cycle that we've seen throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we reach the New Testament and we will see the Son of Man born to a virgin. We will see him live a sinless life, perform many miracles. He crucified on a cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. He will die, be buried, and rise again on the third day. Appear to many witnesses and ascend into heaven. Then, in glorious contrast to Babel, we will see the establishment of the church at Pentecost. And unlike at Babel, God will not confuse language because man sought glory, but he will reconcile language to promote his glory and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's turn there because the contrast between Babel and Pentecost is beautiful and my words will not do it justice. So please turn to Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What amazing contrast to Babel 
and what a foreshadowing of the end of the story for our believers. I've said throughout the entirety of this message that man's rebellion and pride is limitless. And that is certainly true for man in his fallen state. But there is indeed a limit to rebellion and pride for the believer, and it's found only at Calvary, where he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. The cross is the high watermark of rebellion and pride for the believer. The limitless rebellion and pride of man is no match for the immeasurable grace of Christ. That is the good news. That at the end of the story, man is not scattered, disinherited, and confused. We are redeemed for those who will believe. As we close, the most appropriate way to conclude a message on Babel is to gaze into our future because we know what our past looks like. At the beginning of this message, I said that man will never come together again as a unified whole until the day of judgment when people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue are gathered together. And for those who are found in Christ, they will glorify God in unison once again. What will that look like? What will the culmination of God's redemptive work for mankind be like? We saw a foretaste of it at Pentecost. What will the ultimate culmination of that redemptive plan be like? Please turn with me to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is how the story ends after Babel. Man's pride and rebellion is limitless, but God's grace is immeasurable. And for the believer, Babel is not the end of the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come together this morning and study your word. May we remember that the rebellious tendencies of the tower builders are present in us as well, but your grace is there for the believer. As we leave this sanctuary and we go into our daily lives, may we raise Ebenezer and not construct Babel. May we say... Thus far the Lord has helped us and not let us make a name for ourselves. Be with us as we leave this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would uh, please stand and join us by the Lord.